Okay, we're all set. Okay, great. Thanks, Eben. Um, this is Christine Kennedy, and I am a student of the Bard MBA. And we're talking today with Libu Gernick, who is at currently at TrueCost and has been working many years in the field of sustainability. And I'm joined here with uh, Katie Menke, who is a fellow student, and we will be talking to Libby about her work with True Cost and Natural Capital Evaluation. So I guess, Libby, to get started, can you introduce yourself and what you do, your, your journey to where you've been, <laughs> and a little bit about True Cost, please? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to, Christine. And again, thanks so much for hosting these Sustainable Business Fridays. I think it's a really exciting thing that you're doing, and also for having me as one of your panelists. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, again, my name is Libby Burdick, and I'm Senior Vice President with True Cost. And my role with the company is to manage our North American business. And I also work as part of True Cost's uh, senior leadership team. For those of you who are not familiar with TrueCost, we're a, a London-based research firm that was founded uh, in about 2001. And our expertise is in measuring environmental performance, whether it's for a large multinational corporation or a large asset owner or investor who is looking to measure the environmental performance, for example, of their portfolio. And, and what's unique about true cost is that we measure that environmental performance in physical terms like gallons of water or tons of greenhouse gases, but our unique expertise is in putting a monetary value on that environmental performance in addition to being able to communicate in environmental terms. We also enable the companies we work with to speak about environmental performance in business terms. So uh, along the way, over the past 13, 14 years, TrueCost has developed uh, a number of very specialized tools and databases that help us to measure environmental performance and also put a monetary value on it. And our, our aim in doing this is really to help direct the flow of capital towards more sustainable business models and solutions in the marketplace. So that's a little bit about TrueCost, Christine. Great, thanks. Um, I'll start with a question, and then I believe Katie has some as well. So mm -hmm. what trends do you see in the evaluation of natural capital in, in sustainable business? What what gives true cost business, essentially? <laughs> well, I think the trends in valuing natural capital are pretty exciting. Uh, this, what we're doing here, of course, is, is not anything new. There's a host of experts who have been putting a monetary value on ecosystem services for, for many years. And uh, certainly environmental economists have pioneered this kind of work. And what we're doing at TrueCost is applying these tested and proven techniques in a context of business corporations and uh, industry-wide sectors. So first of all, I think that's one of the trends is that these tools to value natural capital are being applied in different ways. 
Another trend that I think is really important to note is that there's a current ongoing effort to standardize the methodologies that are being used. And the Natural Capital Coalition, based uh, in London, is now engaged uh, in a multi-stakeholder global effort to develop standard guidelines and methodologies for how natural capital accounting should be applied. And then I, I would note that just one other trend is that this isn't just a true cost thing. There's a lot of organizations involved. We have a number of leading NGOs that are working on natural capital accounting. We've got investor groups like the Natural Capital Declaration or uh, the UN Principles for Responsible Investing, uh, as well as this kind of work being done at a sovereign level where you have groups like WAVES that are pioneering ways for general economies to be looking at natural capital valuation. So all told, I, I would say that the trend in how businesses and governments uh, are looking at natural capital valuation is all quite exciting. Libby, this is Katie. Good morning or afternoon. Um, Hi, Katie. You mentioned, you mentioned the trend in um, applying the valuation um, <coughs> of natural capital um, to, different, to answer different types of questions. And maybe you can expand a little bit more about the types of questions that are currently being answered um, using natural capital and ecosystem valuation. Sure, sure. Uh, well, I think some of the questions are, are fairly straightforward. And then they get harder. <laughs> but generally, the first question that, that businesses or investors ask is, how much uh, natural capital is my business using? Or how does my business depend on natural capital? And it's not always apparent, because uh, with investors, there's a lot of uh, businesses whose risks are embedded deep within their supply chain. And even a retailer or a brand may not know the full extent to which their business depends on natural capital. So that's, that's really one of the first starting points is simply to understand in what ways, both good and bad, positive and negative, does my business depend on natural capital to grow revenue. And then the second question is often, well, now that I know how much my business depends on natural capital, how much of that natural capital is really available to me? So am I using more than what's likely to be there in the course of my business? And as an example, water is a, a, good, um, situ a good example to look at because water is such a local issue that when a business tallies up, how much water is being used across the enterprise, it, it, it's important to understand how much is being used, but am I using it from a location where there's enough available? So if, for example, I'm in the Pacific Northwest in Canada uh, where there's a lot of uh, water abundant, then it might not be a problem to be using a lot of water. But if I'm in the southwestern part of the United States or in the Middle East or areas in China where there's current scarcity and projected scarcity, then if I'm using 
even small amounts of water that could put my business at risk. So the, and I, I would say that the third kind of question that, that businesses are asking is really how do I build a more resilient supply chain or portfolio? And again, the question there is about what are these environmental risks within my investment portfolio or within my enterprise? How do we quantify them and start to work to manage those risks so that uh, we can reduce them over time? That's great. Thanks, Libby. Uh, just a, a question if I can ask the people can mute their phone if they're not speaking, please. Okay. The, the next question, speaking of water in particular, is you soft launched a an app, a global app that puts a price on water, a real price. Can you let us know a little bit about this and what, you know who were your partners in making this happen? Sure, sure. I I wish we had had soft launch, but we're we're not quite there yet. Uh, the tool uh, will be launched in early November, uh, and we're working with Ecolab to develop this uh, water, tool, water tool. We're, we're really excited about it because it extends a lot of the work that has been done already by a number of organizations to understand water risks globally. And what this tool does for the first time, as far as we know, is to put a monetary value on those risks, with the idea being that uh, it's great for a business to know what the risks are and where they're operating in relation to those risks, but once you put a monetary value on that risk, the information becomes much more actionable and a business is able to take that quantified information and incorporate it into their existing business decision support networks. So look forward to the launch, Christine, uh, in early November when it will be uh, a publicly available tool online and available to be used by all. Fantastic. Look forward to that. Perhaps there's an opportunity with uh, your your BARD students that uh, they might pilot test or give us some feedback on the tool. I I believe that would be a good audience for it, certainly. Uh, Hi, folks. If you're just joining us, you're with the BARD MBA program in sustainability, um, and we are talking with Libby Burdick from TrueCost. Um, if you'd like to ask uh, uh, Libby a question, you can hit five-star on your phone, and that will open, will 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 enable you here uh, at at uh, Command Central to ask a question. Um, and uh, Katie or Christine, back to you. Sure, Libby. Um, speaking of this water tool and how it's been developed um, jointly with EcoLab, um, how I guess you said you you mentioned that you have a lot of tools and databases. Were most of those developed in house at TrueCost, or did you um, you know did they develop slowly over time with an assortment of partnerships? Uh, was it kind of like grassroots efforts to start valuing this, or if how how did um, TrueCost evolve its expertise and knowledge in, in natural value uh, natural capital valuation? Sure. 
So it's interesting that you ask that because the company was really founded by several folks from the investment community who were saying, we think that it's right that investors are asking about environmental risks in their portfolios, but we're not sure that the right questions are being asked. And so what came out of that early thinking was a database called the True Cost Environmental Register. And it's a database that uh, we think is probably the world's largest. It covers about 94% of listed uh, equity globally, about 4,600 of the world's largest companies. And it includes quantified information on their environmental performance covering about 500 different environmental metrics as well as that valuation information, in other words, business value at risk. So that was one of the early databases that we developed, and what was central to that was also the true cost, uh, what's called economic input-output lifecycle assessment model. It's an econometric tool that is in wide use by governments globally to measure uh, economic flows, and it's something that true cost used and customized, and it's a tool that uh, we have uh, customized very specifically to look at a wide range of commodities uh, and also uh, energy flows throughout the global economy. So it's that uh, true cost model and the true cost environmental register database that are two of the ones that are unique to true cost. But then along the way, we've amassed a large library of publicly available databases and tools and the like. So to some extent, we're, we're agnostic as to the information that we use. We want to use best-in-class information, whether it's what TrueCost has developed or whether it's publicly available information. That's great. And I'm guessing that most of the, of the public available information that you've compiled is available through the TrueCost website. I've seen some reports on there that have been really useful for me. Um, I believe that where there's a few white papers as well on there. That's right. So we publish a number of reports and research papers that synthesize a lot of this information. So for example, uh, every year we work with greenbiz.com to publish and do the research for the State of Green Business Report. And then, of course, we're, we're engaged by organizations like uh, the United Nations Environmental Program or Plastics Disclosure Project to measure and value uh, environmental risks in consumer product supply chains related to the use of plastic in packaging. And those reports are, are all on our website. But then there's a, a huge array of just libraries that TrueCost maintains on uh, databases about uh, environmental performance or databases about water availability, for example, that we would draw on to make those kind of reports and do that kind of research. But I, I would encourage anybody who's interested to look at the publication section of our website because there is, we try to make a lot of information available uh, not only to students like yourselves, but also the general sustainability community. 
That's a great resource. I can see some finance paper source there um, for our classes. Another question that's a little bit tougher, but you know, you and I have discussed this before, that there are critics of natural capital evaluation and say that you shouldn't put a value on nature. It's just an intangible. It just needs to be taken care of. Why do we have to put dollars around everything? But what is your response to that? I think that there's some value in being able to speak a language of dollars to people who might not be as invested in the intangibles, but I'd like to know how how you perceive that. Mm -hmm. Sure, and, and I think it's a, a great question, and it does come up a lot. And there is an ongoing conversation about whether or not it's appropriate to put a monetary value on nature. And, and Christine, we, we get it a lot too because there's uh, a similar question and conversation that's going on around social capital. And is it appropriate to put a price on social and human capital also? And uh, part of our response, of course, is that we think the conversation and the dialogue around this is very healthy and that it's good to have uh, that ongoing debate. I suppose from my own internal perspective, I, I've been working in the environmental field for about 30 years, uh, focused specifically the last half, 12 or so years, really on sustainability, working with businesses to make greener products. And I, I feel a certain frustration about the pace at which we've been able to make change. So my perspective is that one of the advantages of putting a value on natural capital dependency is that if it spurs the rate of change and helps us move faster towards a more resource efficient economy, then it's a good thing. And since we at TrueCluster are primarily working with businesses, like it or not, the dollar is the language of business. So we're trying to apply this lens of natural capital accounting and use the terminology that we think will resonate the best with the businesses that we work with. I, I also want to um, point out that uh, uh, I guess it was last year I was uh, guest lecturing at an MBA school here in Philadelphia area and I, I asked the students in my class, do you think that we should be putting a, a, a value on natural capital? And I'm always interested to hear the response and the thinking, and actually the, the comment that I got back was, no, we shouldn't, and the reason why is because it's too hard. And so there are a lot of views about this, one being that it's just not right to do it, but also that it's a really difficult and challenging thing to do. Um, Libby, a question about that. So I'm an economist and actually quite interested in the sort of technical side of uh, non-market valuation, but I, I don't want to go there in this call too much. You, a couple of years ago, you guys, I think, did the environmental profit and loss statement for Puma. Is that right? That's right. Um, and I thought that was a fascinating exercise because really what you were doing was uh, quantifying the, in some sense, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but quantifying the external social costs that were associated with Puma's uh, production activities um, and um, and it was revealing uh, but 
was it relevant? And so I'm, I'm wondering, have other people, because those, those costs are, are by definition external. They're, they're not costs that Puma has to think about, you know, from the point of view of, of just sort of single bottom line profitability. So how has that exercise helped guide Puma's um, thinking, and have other people done this, uh, have, have done this kind of exercise since then? Sure. Maybe you should tell the audience about what about what you did actually be helpful. Sure. It, it's a great question. And for those of you in the audience who aren't familiar with the work that Puma da, did, uh, they worked with TrueCost and PwC to develop what's known as an Environmental Profit and Loss Statement, or EPML. And that EPML tallied up and summarized all of the uh, environmental costs uh, for Puma across its enterprise, its own business operations, as well as its supply chain, all the way back to raw material sourcing. And it summarized all of that into one neat page that was intended to express their dependence on natural capital in one uh, chart or graphic. So for example, at the end of the day, Puma knew that its uh, external impact the social cost of all its production uh, tallied up to about 145 million euros. And so that information did a few things. One, it, it certainly revealed where Puma was dependent on natural capital. So for example, the leather that was being used for many of their uh, athletic equipment had a significant dependence on natural capital because, of course, the cows feed on grain and, uh, you know, there had been droughts in many of the regions where that grain was being sourced, and so those impacts were being felt along the bottom line. So one of the questions we often get is, how is this information used? And since the time that we've worked with Puma, uh, we've done, I think, about uh, 50 valuation projects uh, another one that was uh, recently released was for Nova Nordisk, uh, the Danish pharmaceutical. And so along the way, there have been additional learnings and uh, findings about how to use the information. And certainly, having a baseline quantitative measurement about what your natural capital dependencies are is very powerful in and of itself. It becomes a way that a business can track and measure its progress and performance over time. We're often also asked how the information is actually used, since, uh, as you point out, these costs are external to the books. So most businesses are not paying for these costs now. So a couple ways the information is being used. For Puma, for example, they were able to look at their new in-cycle brand line and evaluate whether they should continue to use leather or use alternative materials. And based on that information, we're able to actually shape the way they designed their new product around this in-cycle line. Another example is with Nova Nordisk. When they went through the EP&L analysis, one of the findings was that uh, within their supply chain, they had certainly expected that there would be 
uh, water-related risks because for those of you who are familiar with Novo Nordisk, they use a, a, a corn-based ingredient to make their pharmaceutical product uh, to treat diabetes. And they certainly were not surprised that there were environmentally related risks within the growing of the corn, but one of the other learnings was that a lot of the procured goods and services that they buy, uh, unrelated to the corn, were also having quite a large impact on their environmental performance. And so they were then able to include those indirect spend categories within their uh, risk management framework. So those are just two examples of how companies are using them. And uh, I can also point to Interface as another example where we worked with them this past year to value uh, their natural capital dependency at a product level using life cycle analysis. And the way that Interface is now using the information is as a single measure by which they can measure performance. So in the past, they were looking at carbon and water and waste and air pollution. And now when they look at optimizing their product, they just look at one metric instead of many. So they're using dollars to really uh to, to, to be the, the common denominator that allows them to, uh, in, in that sense, in that monetized sense, have the overall least environment or be, be attempting to move towards the overall least environmental impact? That's right, because one of the challenges, uh, and I'm sure your, your students have all struggled with this a little bit, is that with typical environmental measurements around sustainability performance, you have different issues that are measured different ways. So with greenhouse gases, we might measure uh, that in terms of tons of greenhouse gases, whereas with water, we're looking at gallons of water. And at the end of the day, when you have a situation in front of you where you say, well, uh, which is better or worse, this ton of greenhouse gas or this gallon of water, we're not able to compare those two because they're in different metrics. So what happens by applying evaluation to all the environmental impacts, we're using one common metric and we can understand what those trade-offs are and uh, just use one normalized value to describe all of the impacts. That's really interesting and kind of uh, and, and then of course the devil is in the details about sort of what dollar amount do you put for a ton of carbon and what and obviously depending on your water impacts presumably those water costs are going to be very different in different places as you as you mentioned that's right it's absolutely right the devil is in the details and the key there is to be transparent about how those costs are derived and what costs are being used and Water, you bring up a great point because what we know about water is that in many regions where water is scarce, it's actually, uh, the price is very low. And that's actually encouraging very unsustainable behavior by businesses because there's no incentive, so to speak, to be more efficient or to take on broader 
water stewardship activities. So part of the benefit of using a natural capital valuation when we look at water is that that regional aspect is actually brought into the valuation. So we're valuing the water based on its local scarcity. And that's one of the really critical features and one of the real benefits of applying the valuation as opposed to just measuring the amount of water used. And using the local price. So you're actually using what you think is the actual, in economics terms, the opportunity cost of the water, not, the, not what the price is. <laughs> that's right. So it, it, the terminology does get uh, confusing. There is a, a local price that businesses pay that's what's charged by the market. And then, of course, there's the full value of water that encompasses many, many other benefits that water provides, whether it's recharging groundwater or recreational services. And those, the full value of water is not always taken into account when that market price is set. But the challenge is that if you're in a water-scarce region, you're a business is paying a very low price in terms of its operating expense, but the risk of not having water in a water-scarce region uh, carries a much greater value to the business. It's certainly, in many cases, it's licensed to operate, and for many businesses also uh, very connected to their ability to grow. Terrific. You're, you're on Sustainable Business Fridays with the BART MBA in Sustainability. Uh, BART's program is one of a handful of uh, uh, MBA programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more about our program, we're based in New York City in Manhattan, uh, and we offer a low residency model with classes Friday morning to Monday afternoon once a month and online classes Tuesdays and Thursday nights to supplement those residencies. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about our program, please uh, check us out on the web at uh, www.bard.edu backslash MBA or send us an email at uh, mba at bard.edu. Uh, and we are talking today with Libby Burnick from TrueCost. If you'd like to ask um, uh, uh, Libby a question, uh, please just hit five star on your phone and that will, will enable you to ask the question. Um, and uh, Katie and Christine are two students in our MBA program, and they're uh, sort of our chief questioners today. So back to you guys. Thanks, Ivan. Conference um, muted. I'm, I'm curious now um, for your clients, like whom I know noticed, who are involved in, and have a clear, clearer understanding of what their um, ecosystem services cost and what their environmental know is. Do you find starting to integrate those into a unified integrated bottom line, or are they still being viewed and used as two separate tools and indicators? I, I had a little bit of difficulty hearing the question, but it, if I understood it correctly, it's how businesses are, are integrating this information into their standard operating practice. Is, is that what you were asking? Yes. yes. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, I was asking if you find these companies who are um, already knowledgeable about uh, what their environmental P&Ls are and what their um, ecosystem 
resources, resource uses, if you find them trying to integrate that into a unified bottom line or if the bottom line and their environmental bottom line so to speak are still being used as two separate tools? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great question. So uh, the, the Puma work was issued in 2011. So relatively speaking, we're still a little bit young at this. And so practices are certainly evolving as we speak, and businesses are now working to integrate EPNLs and valuation data into their standard day-to-day, -day, just like they're doing with the environmental metrics that we're all so familiar with. So it, it's definitely a journey. You, you hear that a lot, I'm sure. The other aspect to your question, though, is something that the IIRC, the International Integrated Reporting Council, uh, is working on, and I think that's very exciting also. And there's work underway to develop a framework for how businesses can better incorporate this thinking about natural capital, social capital, and human capital into their business strategies overall and have it integrated into their traditional business reports. So that work is ongoing. Uh, there's a number of companies worldwide who have piloted the use of the IIRC's integrated reporting framework, and there continue to be more and more companies doing that every year. And I'd, I'd encourage any of, the, any of you in the audience uh, who are not familiar with that to take a look at IIRC's website and also all of the company reports that have been published where they are actually starting to integrate the other capitals, natural, social, human capitals, into their thinking around the business. Uh, Infosys is a great example where they valued uh, all of their social capital and that was disclosed as part of their annual reporting. SAP, as another example, has valued uh, certain aspects of their social capital. And then, of course, Nova Nordisk uh, has had a very sophisticated um, approach to its annual reports and has uh, publicly disclosed a lot of that information also. So it sounds like a lot of companies are kind of um, starting, a lot of the companies at least that know of their natural capital are kind of starting to um, starting to bring all of those, you know, complex set of metrics and, and standards into um, into something that could be very useful for investors and decision makers moving forward. That's right, and, and, and it typically starts, it's not unlike a traditional approach to sustainability. A company first has to understand and measure their environmental performance in physical terms, and then the next step is really to start to understand what does that mean strategically for the business as a whole, and how does it align with standard business financials. So that first if a company hasn't yet even measured its environmental performance, that can take quite a bit of time to do that for the entire enterprise. So a lot of companies are just getting started. 
does um, does true cost work um, mostly with companies who have kind of already started that journey, or do you really try to work with those um, companies that maybe haven't even started looking at their environmental metrics yet? It it really depends on the region of the world and the type of business. A lot of folks are familiar with true cost because of sort of the first that uh, we work with on our clients, the Puma EPML, for example, the, the cost of water tool with Ecolab, or the stranded asset analysis with uh, the EA pension fund. So those are a lot of the, the sort of um, first-to-market activities that people know about true cost. But we also work, for example, in the UK where there's mandatory greenhouse gas reporting requirements and a lot of small businesses are asking how do I measure my carbon footprint and they're at a very early stage in the process. We're here in the States as another example a typical first step for a company is simply to ask how would I benchmark my performance against my peers and they're not ready to value their performance financially, but they need to know where do I stand in relation to my peers and what is best practice. So there's a lot of companies who are starting out who are using true cost metrics and data and tools to get answers to their questions. <clears throat> That's great. It's Christine again. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Christine. I have another question, but you go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, so I was going to suggest that we see if there's any uh, calls or questions from the audience, and then I have one last sort of topping question to ask you. Still waiting for any calls from the audience. Five star again, we'll get you into the conversation. Um, and uh, I just put, put in a plug for our next uh, Sustainable Business Fridays. It's going to be at the end of the month. Uh, last Friday of the month, which I believe is Halloween, yeah, October 31st. Um, it's going to be Lou Blaustein talking about green sports. He's the, he's the uh, uh, editor of Green Sports Blog in Manhattan. So it's going to be a great topic. Um, but uh, Libby, could you speak to um, what are some of the thorniest issues that you deal with in trying to put a monetary value on some of these, uh, on some of these natural uh, capital uh, resources that are um, – being utilized by companies. Uh, I mean, do you deal with, for mm -hmm. example, endangered species and, and things that are really challenging to get uh, a good number for? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head that one of the thorniest issues is oftentimes having site-specific data. And so what do you do if you don't have site-specific data? Uh, in some cases, uh, the businesses we work with start to collect it. So as an example, uh, we did some work earlier this year with Monsanto and Natura in Brazil measuring the benefits of uh, different kinds of agricultural practices related to soy and palm oil. And there we, we created a framework for valuing the benefits of more sustainable agriculture, but then we had to gather the data. And so that took some time. And so, of course, that is one of the issues is balancing what a business needs to know with the amount of data that needs to be captured. So a lot of 
questions we ask early on in the part of the process are around what is the business decision that we need to inform? What kind of data do we really need? How detailed does it need to be? Are there proxies that we can use in lieu of site-specific data? So that first step is really vital in these projects to understand how a business will use the information on the valuation to make a better decision, and then making sure that the data and the evaluation is sufficiently robust to support that kind of decision. I think the, the tendency for all of us is that we always want more, better, precise data. And at some point, we have to say, well, how much is enough? And do I have the right kind of information that will help me be, uh, as I call it, roughly not, r roughly right, but, but perhaps not precisely perfect? And knowing when you need a number that's roughly right versus precisely perfect is a large part of the challenge. Are there any specific resources that you've just really, you know, you kind of feel like you're on the, the frontier in terms of trying to figure out how to put a price on them? Well, I think one of the areas where TrueCost has pioneered a lot of the work is our ability to quantify and measure supply chain performance. We, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, developed uh, a, an IO model, an econometric model that quantifies environmental performance from raw material sourcing all the way through uh, business operations. And we're able to do that very quickly and efficiently. And a lot of our work, both in measuring the performance of an investment per portfolio and also measuring a company's supply chain really draws on that tool and that technique. So that's one of the areas where we've pioneered a lot of the work. Another area that I think is pretty exciting where we've uh, had a lot of research and done a lot of research and issued some very unique information that has been helpful to businesses and investors is really around water valuation and understanding, uh, for example, how water scarcity is linked to its value and also looking globally around the world at every country and, for example, at their purchasing power and how that relates into these water scarcity models. So I think those are two areas where we've really tried to move the ball forward and help uh, thinking evolve around these areas. Great. Well, we're getting towards the end of the hour. So, Christine, you said you had a final question. Yeah, this is a bit more general, but I think it's something that um, we came up with as a question to ask some of the people at the Climate March a few weeks ago. And so two things. You've been in the sustainability field for a long time, and so why are you here? <laughs> What's the reason why you got into this um, messy, frustrating business? And what is the solution that's out there that you see that, that excites you about progress? You, you mentioned how things are going kind of slow, but we what is out there that's really exciting you to move forward? 
oh, Christine, you've known me for a while. So I, I have, have been doing this for a while, about 30 years now, and I continue to be excited about the opportunity and about what we can do to really move business forward in a way that helps them grow revenue uh, with less dependence or more thoughtful dependence on natural capital. Um, so what, what inspires me? I guess I continue to see new solutions out there all the time. Uh, new Light Technologies, for example, I think is a really cool uh, new company that's figured out a way to take methane from the air and make it into plastic. So I continue to see examples like that where companies are beginning to make greener products and uh, that really, I think, will change the game. The other thing that excites me and where I think there's a lot of growth is that more traditional businesses are starting to report the um, their, on their greener products. So we have companies like DuPont, for example, or Kimberly Clark, who are now talking about their revenue growth, specifically related to the greener products that they're making. And that's pretty exciting to see these kind of large multinational businesses who are recognizing that there really is opportunity to develop greener products and services and that there is market demand for these. And I, I, I guess the other thing, you know, when you say what's, what's inspired me, um, I mean, at my heart, I'm, I'm trained as a scientist and, and engineer. I, I am a businesswoman, but uh, I go back to my roots, so to speak, and I, I'm really sort of excited by this whole conversation that's evolving around science-based targets. How do we know how much natural capital we can actually use to make sure that businesses will be around for a long time. So those are some of the things that I'm interested in and excited about. Well, thank you. That's a, a great answer. Uh, so, Eben, I'll let you close up the call unless there are other questions from the floor. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you've been uh, listening in on Sustainable Business Fridays. We're here uh, first and last Fridays of every month. Uh, calls are organized by students in the MBA in Sustainability program at Bard College. Uh, again, you can find us on the web, www.bard.edu backslash MBA. So thank you, Christine and Katie, for uh, inviting Libby to join us and for your insightful questions. And uh, Libby, I learned a lot today about uh, this really frontier work that TruthCost is doing in terms of um, bringing the cost of natural capital into the boardroom. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful being here. Bye-bye, everybody. We'll see you uh, on Halloween. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.